I'd love you to talk a bit about the long now and what that means. Just what's the genesis of the project? Okay, so um, in 1978, I moved to New York, um, a very fast city, as you know, and at a party one evening, I met a famous uh, musician, woman, who said, you must come to our dinner party next weekend, and she gave me an address. And when the weekend came, I got into a taxi and was taken into an increasingly broken part of Manhattan. And I thought, this guy is taking me for a ride. This can't be where she lives. But indeed, it was where she lived. Um, I got to the address, and it was a broken-down building in a very wrecked street. And I rang the doorbell, and the lift arrived, and I went up into this kind of palace. Um, and I thought, how strange that you would make such a fabulous place in such a broken neighborhood. And I said, um, what do you think about living here? And she said, um, I love it. It's, it's just as I imagined it. You know, so-and-so designed that, and this carpet was by somebody else. And I realized that when she said the word here, she meant everything that she could lock the door on. She didn't mean the neighborhood at all. And I, I started to realize that New Yorkers lived in a very much smaller here than I was used to. So I came up with this idea of the small here and the big here. The big here is the world around you, not just the bit that you have the key to. And then I started to think that they had the same attitude towards time, yeah. actually. That um, time was also very local. So you did things in relation to your goals of this week or this month. Um, you didn't really ever think about what would happen after you'd gone, what was the, the impact of your actions. Now, I started to notice that actually this was a theme that um, really was social throughout the whole of American society and actually English as well. I noticed it more in America. Um, was that people no longer really thought of the long-term consequences of their actions. So they, I thought they lived in a very short now. I was comparing it to example, for example, to um, people who uh, plant vineyards for their grandchildren. Um, that still does happen in some parts of the world. Um, I was comparing it to people who imagine their uh, descendants and think about their ancestors, which happens in a lot of parts of the world. It's something that we had lost the habit of. I also noticed that companies, corporations and so on, were more and more motivated by the bottom line of the quarterly report. So the long-term intentions of, of the organization were completely lost. It was only about short-term profit. But don't you think it's always been like this? I mean, if I, you and I were talking the other day about, say, somewhere like Leptis Magna, now a magnificent ruined city on the North African mm -hmm. coast. And less than 2,000 years ago, that used to produce three wheat harvests a year, which was why the Romans used it as their breadbasket. They destroyed the soil, they did everything, and they mm -hmm. moved on. I mean, haven't we always been, isn't it a state of man, to always be incredibly short-sighted? Well, it looks that way now, but um, I would refer you to the work of um, Eleanor Ostrom, who's an economist. She died a few years ago. And she wrote what was really the most important rebuttal to Garrett Hardin's 
theory of the tragedy of the commons. For those of you who don't know that, Hardin wrote an essay in 1968, I think, which suggested that if there was a common resource, mm -hmm. people would exploit it until they used it up, until they destroyed it. And that, you know, there is occasionally evidence for that. But there's also a lot of evidence for groups of people learning how to maintain and sustain a resource. Um, there are many, many, many situations where a lot of people um, share an irrigation source, and they do it by, by some kind of con communal system of agreements. The Arabs did it for years in Spain. Well, you know. but the thing is, isn't it true that a lot of those things are now in the past, and that there's now almost too many of us to... I mean, if you look at somewhere like the Arabian Gulf, which now has many millions of people in it, mm -hmm. and the desalination is now making the Gulf too salty and the fish are dying. Mm -hmm. That area was never sort of designed to yes. have so many people. So how can this um, respect of the commons exist in our, our, our kind of increasing globalization and population? Well, we currently are dealing with, uh, with this problem in a big way with data. That's a commons as well, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the access to the resources of um, the internet, for example. That's a kind of commons, and we're just now starting to realize that we have to somehow think out how we're going to deal with that. The sort of utopian days of the early 90s where the internet was going to solve everything clearly didn't pay off exactly. So now we're thinking, how do we deal with this new commons? But there are a lot of people thinking about this. Of course, we only ever hear the bad news. You know, we only ever hear Cambridge Analytica and so on, which is the bad news. Um, we don't hear about the many, many people who are involved in trying to negotiate some kind of a future with using these systems sensibly. So we need a, a newspaper called The Good News, actually. <laughs> I've often thought that would be such a good paper. That would indeed be a good paper. Do you think anyone would buy it? Well, you, you know about newspapers. <laughs> That's the trouble. I'm not sure whether people, people would. But going back to what, what we would have to do to transform our society or ourselves, you know, we live in a very, very me, 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 which in other words means kind of instant gratification, doesn't yeah. it? How, how could you see that we could turn it around? The first thing I think is a is sort of an educational transformation. Um, I have, as long as the concept of the long now, which I came up with many years ago, I, I have recently been thinking of a new idea, which is the wide me. <laughs> so that isn't, doesn't refer to me becoming no, fat. You're quite narrow, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, it refers to the, to the understanding that all of us are so rooted in our societies and our communities that to think of ourselves as distinct, separable individuals is kind of an illusion. But it's an illusion that has been very profitable for a long time. You know, the, the notion of the consumer is, mm -hmm. is sort of works on the basis of separating somebody out from their community and saying, you deserve it. Yep. You know, that hair ad, whatever that was. Um, the idea because that, you're worth it. Because you're worth it. That's right. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Never worked on me. <laughs> yeah, but you did have amazing hair at one point, probably before the advert. <laughs> um, so, so I think, you know, there was a... Because of the poisonous Anne Rand and various thinkers like her, there was a sort of trend in the mid to late 20th century to say, 
actually the only important part is individuals. You remember Margaret Thatcher's There's No mm -hmm. Such Thing as Society and Anne Rand's Altruism is Evil. Um, the idea that to think socially, to think socialistically even, was to automatically go towards totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was what Hayek, Friedrich Hayek was about. The idea that... Uh, you know, the road to serfdom, as he called it, was to start thinking about other people. Um, and Thatcher and Rand and Reagan and everybody since took that up and sort of this, this is what the corruption of public service is about because essentially they think that is a bad idea. They think that is the denial of the freedom of the individual. And to them, the freedom of the individual is the only value. Mm -hmm. So I think if you start thinking about the wider me and you start thinking not of simply the bottom line for yourself, but for the whole of the community that you depend on, um, you start to think, well, what kind of community do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a community where there are a lot of very, very poor people who make me feel bad all the time? No, I don't. I would rather that, I would rather that the people around me were pretty much in the same position as me, neither that much richer or that much poorer. Um, for example, so so it really requires a, it really requires a deconstruction of that individualistic uh, picture that um, has dominated so much of the last forty or fifty years, and that's a philosophical change. Yes, it, it is, and I and I do believe that most people would infinitely rather live that kind of life. Mm -hmm. But how do we set about achieving it? I mean, well, we first of all look at the people who are achieving it. And lots of people are. You know, there are all sorts of people who, have, who are redesigned, rethinking their lives. Um, I was talking to Scylla Elworthy the other day, who wrote this beautiful book recently called The Business Plan for Peace. Um, Great title. Yes. Uh, so her whole philosophy is that they're actually good, apart from moral arguments, they're good pragmatic economic and social arguments against wars. And they're the strong arguments. And so she started on, at her kitchen table in Oxford, a thing called Oxford Research Group, to study how wars come into being, how you could stop them, where you have to intervene to prevent them happening. Part of her research has been to find out who else is working on this. And in the time she's been doing this, she's found thousands, literally thousands of groups of people who don't get in the newspapers, because they're the good news, mm -hmm. who are working on the same problem. Now, whenever you get into any area of thinking like this, and you think, wow, wouldn't it be a good idea if somebody was thinking about this? You start reading a little bit, and you find lots and lots of people are thinking about this. You weren't there first, you know. So, so I think the first thing is to recognize that there is an enormous social movement going on. It's below the radar at the moment, because it doesn't make headlines. It's much more interesting than all this bollocks about Brexit and whether <laughs> Boris Johnson got it away with somebody or other, you know. Who, who really cares about So how can we people? all plug into it? I think, first of all, you have to support reliable news sources, and that means you have to pay to support them. You know, at the moment, we have a struggle going on between uh, news sources that survive by their mm -hmm. advertising who therefore are in some way... Slightly uh, corrupted. They're corrupted somewhat, yes. 
and news sources who survive in some other way. Well, if you really think that you want good news sources to, to uh, survive, you have to pay for them. It doesn't cost a lot. You know, I, I subscribe to maybe 25 of them, things like Truth Out and mm -hmm. various economic things, and I pay them a pitiful amount, a dollar or two dollars a month, something like that. But if everybody reading them did that, they would all be doing fine, you know. So we, we have to take responsibility for the flow of information. We can't go on complaining about how crap the newspapers are if we aren't prepared to make any kind of investment in an alternative. Well, I wholly agree with that. But do you, do you, feel, um, do you feel optimistic that we can think the long now enough to turn away from whether it's climate change or I feel I feel guardedly optimistic. Um, as I said, I know that there are a lot of people thinking about this, and I know there's much more going on below the surface than it seems. The, the thing that makes me hesitate is that a lot of the brightest people have decided that politics is a filthy game and they don't mm -hmm. want to be involved in it in any way. And so they're, they're sort of taking this laissez-faire attitude and saying, you know, the technology will sort it out, the technology is much more important than the politics. But what I always say to them is, well, you're laissez-ing, somebody else is faring. <laughs> you know, the, they aren't doing politics, but Donald Trump is, yes. for example, and Nigel Farage and people like that. So, unfortunately... Again, if you, if you want to grumble about it, you better get involved in it or just become an old curmudgeon in the pub grumbling. What are you? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I don't go to pubs. <laughs> I know I'd grumble if I did. Well, thank you. Um, that's, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but um, thank you very much. I mean, it's a very inspiring way of looking and thinking at things. Um, I like both the wider me and the long now. Um, I will take your optimism away. Have you got a, any final thoughts? What, any final yes. thoughts? Yes. You've got to do something, that's it. Make your voice heard. In fact, there's this lovely line from Stokely Carmichael. I think he said, you had better make some noise. <laughs> On that note, you can make some noise. Yeah.